Uh, warm welcome uh, everyone to the Institute for Government um, and to our online listeners who have joined us uh, on the live stream. Uh, my name's Georgina, I'm a senior researcher on our Brexit team here at the IFG um, and I'll be chairing this event. Um, EU Parliament elections, what a night. 50% uh, um, estimated turnout, uh, up, turnout up in 21 member states. Um, but the results are showing clearly a more fragmented uh, European Parliament. Um, both the centre-left and centre-right parliamentary groupings um, are lost uh, seats, they've lost their majority as well. Um, but a more fragmented European Parliament could lead uh, to a greater and perhaps more representative plenary debate um, in the European Parliament. Lots of EU citizens calling uh, for more representation, feeling that they weren't uh, being heard or listened to in the European Parliament, and a clear sense from, from the electoral result that that is changing. Um, but of course, a more fragmented European Parliament uh, creates all sorts of complications um, for who gets those top jobs. You're already hearing right now lots of talk, um, and we know that EU leaders are meeting in Brussels this evening to talk about that. Um, but also questions about the functioning of the EU. You know, who, who's going to chair those European Parliament committees? Um, and of course, it makes coalition building much more complicated. But enough from me. Um, with me to dissect these results are Sarah Holbert, uh, Sunderland Chair in EU Institutions at the London School of Economics, has been following EU elections for a long time and finds the EU process, I think, as interesting as I do. So, uh, so great to have you here. Um, we have Stephanie Bolson, UK correspondent for the German newspaper Die Welt. Um, she's also spent time in Brussels um, and is really the go-to person, I think, uh, to find out what Germany thinks about the EU, but also about Brexit. And then Sonia de la Salle-Stolpe, UK correspondent for the French newspaper La Libération, um, who really is able to manage to convey the ins and outs of Brexit to an increasingly perplexed French audience, I think. Um, but also uh, a fountain of knowledge for um, anything uh, on France and France's perceptions of the EU. Um, so I'm really delighted to have you all here um, with us today. So um, just before we start, some housekeeping rules. Um, the event will be held on the record. It is being live streamed. Um, and we will be tweeting about the events from our uh, account at IFG events. Um, but you can tweet also by using the hashtag, um, hashtag IFG Brexit. So please do. So let's crack on. Um, Sarah, I was wondering if I could perhaps start with you. Um, <laughs> Do you think, is there a story to tell in this election? Um, is it fundamentally different? And what do you think this means for the EU um, going forward? Those are the big questions. I mean, I think there is a story to tell, but I also don't think that this is the sort of implosion uh, of the European Parliament as we know it. I mean, the story, let me, let me tell sort of two stories. The first story to tell is the one you already alluded to, which is, of course, that the two major party groups, the centre-right EPP and the, and the centre-left um, socialists and Democrats, have been squeezed and lost their overall majority. Now, we shouldn't exaggerate the amount of fragmentation or the amount of the dominance they've had. I mean, going back to 1979, they only had 
controlled 53%. It's not like they were sort of up in the sort of three quarters, two thirds territory ever. They were always had a sort of relatively small majority, but nevertheless one. That meant that they could sort of set the agenda, and if they made a deal between them, that would tend to be enough also because they, these are groups that have relatively high levels of, of party discipline. So the fact that they've lost that means that there will have to be a different kind of grand coalition not the grand coalition that we know, and they will have to work most likely with the, with the liberals and maybe also with the greens to get things through. So, so that's the way in which the fragmentation matters. But it's not the sort of fragmentations that all of a sudden they have to go and do deals with Le Pen or Salvini in parliament. Um, and I think that's important to note because particularly sort of in the British press, there was this sort of, oh, now the Eurosceptics are taking over. I mean, there's a very solidly uh, pro-European uh, majority still in Parliament and, and these groups on a lot of issues when certainly if it's a sort of pro-European anti-European dimensions are, are quite similar still so I think so in that sense we're not going to see a totally different agenda from Parliament but it does matter that by the fact they have lost their majority they now have to reach out in another way and I think in particular Alder the liberal group which has uh, where Macron as homage uh, MEPs will, will, will sit with could become a sort of kingmaker and will have more influence but again that is a very pro-European group I mean a lot has been made of this oh the centrists have lost I mean the liberals are fairly centrist uh, in any kind of, but maybe not. A, so, so in that sense, I think we shouldn't overplay that. But, but it does matter that, that we see that fragmentation. So that's the first story. The second story is that, again, certainly in the English-speaking media, a lot has been, there's been a sort of slight obsession with the rise of populism. And now that's, of course, very sexy and interesting. Uh, and uh, in a number of countries, and particularly Italy, uh, of course, Liga, Salvini's party did very well. It was expected, but it's non nonetheless significant. I think this is even more significant because he also sits in the council. Yeah, I mean, that's where this can really matter. Uh, of course, Auburn um, slightly improved from last time in Hungary, and, and, and the Law and Justice Party also won in Poland despite, um, despite facing a sort of pro-European, quite united uh, opposition. So, so in that sense, we, there is a consolidation of what we might think of sort of populist nationalists, but there wasn't the surge that some people had expected. Uh, we saw them, and also we have to realize that in some countries they've done very well for decades, like in Denmark, where I'm originally from, and they, they lost the... Um, seats there and, and, and equally <coughs> elsewhere they didn't do as well as expected like uh, in, in Spain and so on. So there has been a kind of consolidation of the radical right but not a populist search that I think will you know mean a very different kind of parliament. On the other hand something that has potentially been a bit overlooked in the run-up to European Parliament election did shape this election and that was a sort of uh, a green search. So green parties did very well. Again, these are second-order elections, so often parties uh, on, the, on the fringes do better, but it's nonetheless significant um, that the green parties did so well. Particularly, this is very much a Western European phenomenon rather than a kind of Europe-wide, but they did do well in, in, in countries like Germany, of course, where they overtook. We can hear more about that later with the Social Democrats, but also in France, in Ireland. And, and it's important because what this shows is that you have parties that, in a sense, compete on a different dimension. The sort of socially progressive Greens, liberals versus the more socially conservative national populists. And these were the parties that were rewarded 
where the parties that are sort of more traditionally economically left-right competing in that dimension are struggling more. So we are perhaps seeing a different kind of European politics. So I think that's maybe the second story that I would highlight from, from, uh, from last night. Oh, the night before. Sorry, it's all a big blur. <laughs> all a big blur. Um, thank you so much. I was just wondering if I could pick very quickly on something you said, you know, um, it's a different kind of grand coalition. But ultimately, it's not just about that. It's also about passing legislation. And we know that Salvini in particular and a lot of his... Um, MEPs um, have said, you know, we want to reform the EU in, in, in our eyes, and if we can't get that kind of reform, we're just going to block, essentially, or delay that process. Do you think that's where it really will change? So less in sort of the grand coalition bargaining at the beginning for top jobs, but much more in the day-to-day -day work of the European Parliament? And does that matter? I'm a little sceptical. I mean, I... For one reason, it's because these groups don't necessarily... So Salvini, of course, in the run-up to these elections, you know, toured Europe and tried to create this new European alliance. And did so, I guess, more successfully than they've been in the past. But, if, but there's still a lot of policy disagreements between them. And uh, the, the, the radical right in the European Parliament tend to not show up as much, and they tend to not vote together very cohesively. That doesn't mean on particular issues, especially more procedural issues in the beginning, that they won't try and be disruptive. But kind of long term, uh, it's not clear that they will be a much more significant force. Where I think that... Uh, these sort of, this is important, is again in the council, because we have Orban sitting in the council. Um, uh, also, and, and of course, Salvini will now be more powerful within uh, his uh, governing coalition in Italy. And that's where they can really shape things. So the fact that we now have a sort of right-wing populists in government that have a, not, they don't want to leave Europe. Um, they're not sort of, in that sense, they're different from the, the national populists we have here. But they want a very different kind of Europe, and that I think it will continue to be a challenge uh, mm -hmm. for the EU. And particularly uh, important given a number of important general elections taking place across the EU. Um, thank you so much for that. Stephanie, I was wondering if I could turn to you, um, perhaps. Interesting results in, in Germany. Uh, Germany's Social Democrats uh, hitting rock bottom, um, and the Greens doubling uh, the number of seats. Um, what do you what do you think this means for Germany? Does this pose a risk for the coalition? Should we, should we be looking at that? Um, yeah, and what's sort of your take on, on kind of what this means for Germany's role in Europe? Yeah, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I have to, um, here, uh, I don't know if you can see that from afar, a map of Germany. Is that possible to see in the back a little bit? So it's not really surprising here. You can see the east of Germany is light blue. So that's uh, the AFD, which again has been very successful in the east. The rest, um, Bavaria is dark black, so to say, which is the CSU. And the, uh, the lighter black-gray is the CDU. You see very little red, which is, as you said, the SPD has lost. Interestingly, the Greens, they won Hamburg, they won Berlin, they won in all the urban centers. So they were the first party, the winner in the more urban areas. Um, while the SPD, um, as you said, had an historic defeat. I mean, here uh, people were talking about the historic defeat of the Conservatives, the worst election results since 1834 or something. The SPD, not quite, but the worst um, result for them for 70 years that they lost Bremen, one of the, the smallest state actually in Germany, the smallest Land or Stadtstaat. Uh, they had since, I mean, forever, and they lost it. So the SPD um, is really in a very, I mean, they were in crisis all the time. They're really hitting rock, rock bottom now. I don't think um, 
that this means a risk for the coalition. I can't, uh, I mean, for the government coalition, as you know, they are forming a grand coalition with the, with the CDU. Um, I do think since Angela Merkel announced to resign, she re resigned as the party leader and she will in due course resign as chancellor, mm -hmm. um, that has somehow taken the pressure off the whole coalition. Um, and who is really now struggling is the leader of the SPD, Andrea Nahles. She announced this morning that she will run for re-election next week. So this is going to be interesting to see. But the SPD is in a very difficult place, as many other social democratic parties in Europe. And um, they are also in a, between in a rock, rock and a hard place, because if they pull out, that doesn't mean that people then in the next go will vote for them because they will say, well, you run away from the responsibility. So it is, it is a very, very difficult situation for the uh, German Social Democrats. Um, then what is interesting about the election in Germany, I think, is the turnout. So the turnout went up from 48% in 2014 to 61.5% uh, this time round. And I mean, I wasn't there, but from what I was in Berlin, I think in, in early May, and I saw so many people walking the streets with um, European flag hoodies. So there was an enormous euphoria almost. People so interested in uh, setting up meetings, uh, this Pulse for Europe events. There was a lot of, um, yeah, just the feeling, well, there's something at stake here. We have the AFD, we have Brexit, we have Le Pen in France, um, and we can't take Europe for granted anymore. So there's almost a new, a new soft ideology almost in Germany where people, it's not so much about parties, it's really about the project of Europe that a lot of people, especially in urban centers, of course, especially more educated people, but I wouldn't restrict it to this um, part of the population. They get really active about it. Um, and so the, the, um, the what, what is the, one of the comments, the headlines is um, that the center ground has held so as much in Germany as, uh, as in, in Europe. And the success of the Green Party, I think there are two components here. One is the new, I mean, the Green Party is fiercely pro-European. Um, that plays well with these new young or youngish Europeans in Germany. And also the um, Fridays for Future and all the climate change issue, which of course the Greens are the most credible party any, any um, analysis you look at is when, when people in Germany are asked who can do the best uh, policies for cl or against climate change, it's always the Greens, and they had 34% of young voters between 18 and 25 in this election. And that's, of course, something that the Volksparteien or the traditional parties, as we call them, CDU and SPD, they look at this and find this pretty scary. Mm. Um, <coughs> I mean, you'd expect me to ask you this question, but um, obviously Manfred Weber, uh, chosen candidate for the EPP. Mm. Um, is he popular in Germany? <laughs> <laughs> if anyone knew him, then you could ask the question if he's popular. I mean, it's, it's a bit mean. I mean, he's a, he's a very experienced um, politician, but he has always and only been in, I mean, he was a, a low uh, Niederbayern, a low Bavaria. He was a um, party official, but then he very early on, he started in, in the parliament, I think in 2009 or even um, the one before. He has been very, very efficient party, how can you call it, um, without, um, he's, he's been very good at negotiating deals behind closed doors, in front of doors. He has been not very good lately uh, when it came to the uh, dispute about Viktor Orban because it took him a very long time to take a clear stance on what actually his 
party group the EPP should do with Viktor Orban. Um, so he is he knows the in and outs. I think there's few people in Brussels who knows who know the in and outs of the parliament as well as Manfred Weber. He is very well linked in the European Commission and in the Council. And Angela Merkel did endorse him. She endorsed him again last night, but it was so so. Um, and the the European Parliament, the Board of Presidents, they met this morning. Obviously they came out and insist the next Commission president has to be someone who was a Spitzenkandidat. Um, Günther Oettinger came out this morning. Interestingly, the German commissioner, he's, he's leaving, so he's, he's always very open and very blunt, but he, was, he has nothing to lose now anymore, and he said he wouldn't expect any commission to be formed, not even by November. It might really drag on. As Sarah said, for example, if Salvini throws in an anti-European commissioner, the European Parliament has to confirm the commission. Each commissioner gets a hearing, and then they vote on them. This can really take a long time, which also will have repercussions on the Brexit question. Yeah. Well, we'll I'm sure we'll come back to that um, in a moment, but very interesting. Sonia, let me turn to you. Um, Le Pen's you know, Rassemblement National came first, but it, it did underperform, actually, compared to 2014. Um, yet it was still ahead of Emmanuel Macron's uh, renaissance. Um, and obviously, like many other countries, um, a terrible night for the EPP Alliance, Républicain, uh, and the Parti Socialiste. What's your take uh, on this? And how do you think French voters feel? What do they think about the EU and how are they feeling? Well, I thought actually what Stephanie was saying, it's, uh, I mean, we had the same phenomenon in France with a, a record turnout for European elections, which was 50%, uh, 4% uh, compared to uh, 42 in uh, in 2014, which is a, a record in France uh, for those kind of uh, elections. And what is interesting is that turnout did benefit to the, the Green Party or uh, Renaissance, but certainly not to the extreme being far left or far right. Um, about uh, the populist, because I read specifically in the British press a lot before the, the elections that uh, populist wave was coming towards Macron and he would pay the six months of unrest with the yellow vest and everything and that Le Pen was going to uh, win. I mean, she herself said beginning of May that she was aiming for 60 to 80 seats, which would anyway have been difficult because France doesn't have 80 seats at the European <laughs> Parliament, but that's a, a little detail. Um, no, but she said that live on, on TV. And, um, and basically what happened is Yes, the Front National or the Rassemblement National uh, got uh, in front, but they got in front by 0.9% of, of the votes. And basically they have 23 seats as uh, Macron party will have 22. And, uh, and they did underperform compared to 2014 where they had two more seats. So, so, it's, um, so it's certainly not for the Front National, uh, I keep calling them the Front National, sorry, they're called the Rassemblement National. Uh, it's certainly not a, a big victory. What is interesting is uh, if you go to uh, Renaissance, La République En Marche, Usually the European elections, specifically on, in France, are really a moment when voters are going to express their unhappiness uh, towards the government in place. And Macron is far away from the honeymoon following his, uh, which was actually very, very short, following his uh, election. And he should have been penalized at these elections. And he hasn't, because he comes very good second, actually. 
Uh, in 2014, uh, President Hollande's uh, party, the, the Socialist Party, got 14% at the European election, just mm -hmm. to give you um, a, a view of that. What is interesting as well is, in terms of you, you had some headlines, including in France, saying Macron has lost his bet. He had made uh, this whole election about himself, uh, winning against Le Pen, the same as the second round of the presidential, which is in a way true. But actually, if you look at the campaign, it was triggered by the far left, so La France Insoumise from uh, Mélenchon, and Le Pen, who made that contest I, um, a replica of the, the, the presidential as a referendum for or against Macron following the Yellow Vest. And actually, they lost their, their, their bet because Macron, of course, played that card as well. And in personally, probably, in terms of uh, satisfaction, it's not great to come close second. But in fact, what he has managed, or his party, uh, is to completely obliterate the traditional uh, conservative, the Republicans, who got 8%, and the traditional left, the Socialist Party, who got 6%. And La France Insoumise was crushed as well with 6%. So basically that whole, whole rhetoric about we are talking for all those people who were uh, you know, in the streets, or I should say on the rond-point for months, and uh, protesting and being so uh, angry about what is going on hasn't materialized um, at the election. Uh, the second point maybe uh, which is interesting is as well the, the, the vote for the Green, which uh, has done 13,5%, uh, which is a, a very, very good score for, for the French Green. And what, furthermore, what is interesting, if you look at uh, the vote, uh, the young have voted in mass for, for the Green Party, under 35. And there is a phenomenon which is interesting, is there has been some attraction f among the young for the Rassemblement National, and that seems to have stalled, which gives me personally quite a bit of hope and uh, optimism for, for, for the following. And to finish as well with something what you were talking about, the campaign, the European campaign and the enthusiasm you, you saw in, uh, in Germany, it was actually fascinating to see in France how much, and I thank Brexit for that, I have to be honest, I think it has really put back Europe and the European, um, the EU, what is the EU in the center of the political discourse. I think for the first time probably in European elections in a very, very long time, you had people talking about what does it mean, what can you do, what can't you do. There were loads of debates on TV in France, uh, not always of a very high level, but there were lots of them, uh, lots of pages. And, uh, and you were showing, uh, I, was, I wanted to just try to show you, I don't know if you can see, probably not, but that's the front page of Liberation uh, yesterday, which says basically Europe uh, is um, fait de la résistance, so is resisting actually all those populist waves. So um, yes, I think there is clearly a, a renewed interest into uh, European matters in France, definitely. Great. Um, I have a number of questions, but I'm sure you do as well. So I will open up very shortly. Just sorry, briefly, because um, we've talked a lot about obviously Germany, France, but and, and Germany, but. I was wondering if you could touch a word on, on sort of maybe Central and Eastern Europe. Um, different member states voted for their electorates voted very differently. Um, there are different stories um, and lessons that we can draw from that. But 
particularly Hungary and Poland, clearly, uh, you know, support for um, the government uh, party. What does that mean? And is it really Europe being at the, at the front of, of, of their concerns? Um, or was it, again, kind of a nod either in support or against the government? I think Hungary and Poland are quite different stories. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in Hungary, Orban and Fidesz really cemented his power. I mean, he had probably hoped for sort of 60-odd percent, and he got, I guess, 53 or something mm -hmm. like that. But, but it's still, you know, basically there is no real opposition uh, in Hungary that can sort of mount a credible challenge. Uh, to Orban, and I think, um, you know, f coming from the point of view of a political scientist, I mean, there's a lot of worries about uh, democratic backsliding in Hungary. They have been downgraded on what we have sort of scores of whether or not countries are real democracies, and Hungary has been uh, downgraded uh, because of concerns about lack of media freedom and so on. So I think Hungary is... Um, a challenge for, you know, obviously if you're in Hungary, uh, as an academic, we're also worried about the way in which they um, they have basically uh, ousted the Central European University, their major sort of university. And so, so there's concerns there, and there's concerns for Europe in how to deal with this. What do you do uh, when you have a member state where you're seeing sort of very illiberal democratic tendencies? You know, the, We've had these challenges. What do you do when people, you know, when the debt is too high? This is kind of, and there are sanctions to do with that. And of course, um, so, so, so I think that is going to be a major challenge for Europe uh, going forward, uh, the sort of Hungary program. Of course, Poland has had a similar challenge, but there I think the democratic landscape is different. As I sort of briefly mentioned there, the, the governing party, the Law and Justice Party, did come top of the polls, but there was. Um, a, a sort of pro-European uh, challenger that came not a very distant second. So there is a real opposition in Poland. Mm. Um, and, and so I think they, you know, just sort of saying, oh, they're all the same because they both had, had issues with the, mm. the commission, I think is more... Um, uh, I think Hungary, Hungary is really a, a country to watch and also how... Um, how the EU deals with it, and of course now we don't know what's going to have, happen with um, Fidesz, um, the governing party in Hungary. They are obviously suspended, but still in the EPP. You might all know more about what, what has happened, but, but uh, that's uh, Manfred Weber has so far sort of tried to, to win this commission presidency and distance himself, but that's also, you know, can you have a party that has a very, you know, they, they ran an anti-EU commission campaign as a part of their campaign with Juncker and Soros posters, and that's why one of the reasons they got suspended. You know, can you have them within the kind of Christian Democratic pro-European party family? So there are big challenges at the very heart of Europe and, and Poland, and in particular Hungary is, is part of that. Great. Um, I have one more question, uh, which uh, we haven't touched upon really, but um, Brexit. <laughs> do, do you think the Europeans were right in letting the UK participate? I know it's in the treaties, but the sense is, did it matter? You, you, Sonia, you said that actually it helped Brexit brought the EU and what it's about and understanding the EU to the full. Did it have any other influence? Are Europeans worried about... You mean the fact they participated in the elections? And the results here. But that's um, the law. They're still member of the European Union, so... I mean, 
it was difficult <coughs> not to have them. Yeah, I mean, legally they had to, obviously. I mean, there was no, there was no other way. I, I know that in Brussels, a lot of people are and were very worried because mm -hmm. you now have, I think, 29 Brexit Party members, same number as CDU, CSU members or MEPs. So that's a lot of people. Um, I think they are less worried um, about voting in the council, who's going to be the next uh, head of the Commission, Council and High Representative because um, Theresa May admitted in written at the last council that they will be constructive and, and not play a negative role in the next uh, crucial uh, decisions that has to be, have to be taken there. Um, the head of the AFD, and I, I was just assuming everyone knows what the AFD is, so the Alternative für Deutschland, the anti-immigrant right-wing party, he came out um, Sunday night after the election in an interview and said, because they had a very meager plus 2%, I think two more seats or something, he said one of the reasons he thought was Brexit. Because people look at Britain, they, yeah. if they ever talked about Dexit, <laughs> it's something they will not follow up anymore because it's just such a and chaos. It's the same in France because yeah. the Rassemblement National has completely dropped its uh, Brexit uh, rhetoric, has dropped it. Uh, coming out of the euro, so it's it's not anymore. Uh, I mean, e even in Italy, it's not anymore a subject about coming out of the EU. It's about redoing it or remaking it, whatever, but from within. So, uh, so yes, it has had an influence. Yeah. Great, thank you so much. Um, I think we will turn to you. Um, I have lots of questions, but I'm sure you do also. Uh, yes, is there a microphone? Yeah. <coughs> Thanks very much. Carol Walker. Um, I'd like to continue with Brexit, I'm afraid. Um, is the next leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister going to have anyone to negotiate with before October the 31st? I mean, the process that you've been describing seems to suggest that we may not even have a full commission by then. Do we, do we, do they, are they going to really have to wait until the whole thing is in place before they, I mean, leaving aside the fact that various senior EU officials said so they're not going to reopen the withdrawal agreement. Um, and also, I wonder if you could just say something about how they decide on the replacement for Michel Barnier, who has been quite a key figure in the negotiations um, up to now, and how does that fit into this whole process of deciding the uh, leadership in Brussels? Great, thank you. Maybe I'll just pick up another question and then we'll... David Hanney, House Lords. Um, I wonder if you could, the panel could speculate a little bit about the implications of the arrival in the Aldi group and in the Green group of respectively 17 British Lib Dem MEPs and 11 Green ones. Uh, what effect do you think that will have, particularly on the Aldi group, where they will be sitting side by side with the Renaissance Party, uh, whose uh, leader was not particularly uh, positive about an extension last time? What do you think the effect of all that will be? Thank you. Sarah, do you, do you want to start, perhaps? Um, do we need to wait until a new commission is formed uh, if we wanted to renegotiate? The thing is, the Commission, of course, has been running this process, but behind the Commission is the Council. And, and the Council, uh, you know, there are still going to be heads of state and government that you can negotiate with. And ultimately, and the big question 
the council calls the shots. And I don't think this is a question of sort of doing the nitty, t you know, the small details of the withdrawal agreement anyway. So it will be the big question. So in that sense, there will be people to talk to in the capitals. Um, perhaps uh, the, the other panelists can talk more about, you know, who in the commission they will talk to. But I think this is, this is a, a sort of European Council matter, um, first and foremost, because the point, you know, the EU point of view is that the, the withdrawal agreement is there, you know, so that was the kind of commission job to get all that in order. Now it's high politics. Um, in terms of the effect of um, the Liberal Democrats and the Greens, I mean, the e UK as such is in a sort of, UK MEPs as such as are in an awkward position, you know, because how much, you know, are they going to get the big, the big uh, rapporteurships and the big committee chairmanship? No, I wouldn't think so. But, but I'm sure that Liberal Democrats and Green MEPs will uh, play a, you know, a positive but probably rather subdued role. I don't think they will be seen as a major threat or problem, but they will obviously be, be less influential than they would have been had it been a sort of normal state of affair where the UK was a member state and so on, because nobody knows how long they're going to be there. But I think in terms of the sort of ideological, I mean, these are groups that tend to vote. There's very high levels of cohesiveness, and I still think when you look at the sort of normal ideological spread within the groups, I think the Lib Dems and the Greens fit quite well within the group. So I don't, I don't foresee, you might have other inside information, but I don't foresee a major problem. I mean, of course, the worry about the kind of MEPs who come down there and more to obstruct, but I wouldn't imagine that would in any way be the case for a Lib Dem and Green MEPs. Just maybe for those who aren't familiar with the rapporteuring, um, when, do, when will we get a sense of who, who gets those positions? And well, that won't be until, I guess, the, they won't be voting on that until after. The first is the sort of commission, and then they will start doing that. I mean, they, but again, I don't think that it would be before, I guess, the October 31st, but I can't imagine UK people getting a UK MEP getting, being put forward for, for big roles okay. in any way because. That wouldn't make sense. I mean, of course, I mean, who knows what happens in the UK if we have a second referendum and vote to remain, it might be a different case, but, yeah. but that's a sort of outsider, that's a fairly low probability at this point. Um, my understanding is uh, that the EU haven't agreed what the format is going to be if, if and when the UK uh, starts negotiating phase two, um, if the deal's in place, um, whether they're going to keep the task force format or whether they're going to go perhaps replicate what they've kind of done before, which is have you know one director general leading DG Trade in collaboration with, with different uh, departments. And my understanding is they haven't made up their mind yet, but have you? Well, that's why I have asked the same question to the Commission. Um, who's who's going to talk to the UK? Because actually, this is now a crucial period. If you have a new prime minister in place by the end of July, the first thing I would think they do is go to Brussels and start all over again. And they will talk to the same people because the commission is in place until the 31st of October. Theoretically, Juncker is going on the 1st of November and with him the whole commission, also the task force 50. But um, first of all, we don't know if by the 1st of November a new commission is in place because there's a lot of things up in the air. So they might even stay longer. Uh, Barnier definitely will stay in the Juncker commission until that very last day and the whole task force 50. I don't think Barnier has any chance to be, get the top job. I don't think he has a chance to become president of the commission. So why wouldn't he stay on? Why would the next commission president not keep him? Because the council is quite happy with him. I mean, from some dips were there in the past, but actually, yeah. so I think from a British perspective, absolutely nothing will change. And I don't think 
And then you have to talk much to the member states about this because they just want to have it sorted. They, they, they will not change um, their, their, their um, positions. The only thing which was always a bit of flexibility was the political declaration. There was so much hope in the cross-party talks. I mean, I thought it was almost naive that they thought anything would come out of this. But um, in, in Berlin and in Brussels, they thought, finally, they, they talk to each other. They will find a compromise, and here we are. <laughs> and on the, on the ALDE, um, I, I, I don't know much. Uh, I mean, what, what is great for them is simply having the numbers, so many new seats now, because this will mean they are so much stronger now in the power play that is now happening about the top jobs. So this, in that sense, the British Greens and, and Lib Dems are very welcome, I guess. And I think for, for Renaissance, uh, it, it, there is really a difference between the feeling of President Macron towards the whole process of uh, extension, no extension and everything, and the fact that legally you have uh, Lib Dem and Green uh, who, who will be in the Aldi, which is very good for him, as Stephanie was saying. Uh, one thing is very interesting is at the time when Macron uh, opposed any extension, or at least he opposed it until further June, because he said nothing will happen uh, if, if we carry on doing. And actually, he has been proved right, because yes, something has happened. You have a prime minister. You're going to change prime minister. But in terms of negotiation, of finding uh, a, a way of having the parliament uh, voting in favor of that uh, agreement, nothing has moved and clearly will not move until we get a new prime minister and uh, probably before even the 31st of October. So. Hello, I'm Belinda Gordon from Green Alliance. Um, uh, unsurprisingly, I, I wondered if you could each reflect a little bit more on the sort of rise of the Greens and the impact you think that's going to have on uh, European policy making, if any. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting because if you looked across uh, Green candidates in different member states, that sometimes there are quite strong differences, um, particularly around digital taxation and sort of those hot topics that are likely to be, uh, you know, a number one priority for the next commission. So, yeah, that would be really interesting. Who wants to start? Stephanie. I mean, the, the Greens in, in Germany, they, they are not like a small party. They were in government uh, twice with the SPD between 98 and 2005. Um, but they had a lot of struggles lately in the leadership. The leadership was not very successful in Germany, at least. Um, I think they have been very good at picking up the really burning issues, social issues, um, and, and especially the climate change. They are the most credible party to push that forward. But also they have, at least in Germany, I can't talk for other countries, um, they have moved quite into the socially conservative center ground. So they are progressive, but they're not revolutionary. And so what you always distinguish in Germany, uh, the Greens between the fundis and the realos, so the more, say, orthodox crazy ones and the more realistic ones like Joschka Fischer in his, his days, um, it has moved towards a more state, I mean, a, a party that is potentially in, in federal government. There are in governments all over Germany. There have been now the, the prime minister of Baden-Württemberg is now for, I don't know how many years, five, six, seven years, is the green. Baden-Württemberg is um, one of the most powerful, economically powerful lender in Germany. So they are completely seen as a, not as a Volkspartei yet, but they are really becoming a Volkspartei in Germany. And <clears throat> in European level, that comes back to the power of this, of this bloc in the European Parliament. 
they will, it's now their time to push for legislation. I mean, they will not agree to anything unless they get the reassurances that on yeah, taxation, uh, I don't know, um, environmentally friendly taxation or especially on climate change, something will be promised and delivered or nothing, no, no positions will be uh, given in, in Brussels. Sorry, Well, just um, from a UK perspective, I guess, the fact that the, the Greens and also the Liberals can be the kind of kingmakers, any future trade deal, if we ever get to a point of getting beyond this point, of course, will then need to be approved by Parliament. And there, that might have an effect, you know, because the Greens will might push for certain, uh, for certain things in such a trade deal. So, so, I mean, they're clearly within Parliament, they're clearly going to be a more powerful force, not only because they're bigger, but also because the socialists and, and the EPP no longer hold a majority. So that gives them extra leverage um, in addition to their, to their size. Also, it's, I mean, one thing is you can't obviously translate a strong green performance in a European Parliament election directly into national elections because we know that people just vote differently mm -hmm. in these countries. There's still sort of second-order elections where voters think, oh, you know, uh, I mean, to put it a bit crudely, yeah, we can vote for the Greens there, but do we really want them in government? You know, that's not necessarily the same thing, but we do have research showing that if you do well in the European Parliament elections, that might also be, you know, for sort of first-time Green voters, might also be, oh, okay, maybe we will give them a chance nationally. And that matters also because it was the young people in particular, like we can, from Germany, it was really a massive sort of generational gap that it was the young people who voted for the Greens, and I think also in France. And of course, they, you know, they're going to live, be voters for longer than the people who voted for, like here in Britain, you know, the opposite way around, it was the old people who voted for the Brexit party. So, um, so in that sense, that also gives some, some hope to the Greens. But they didn't do that well in Eastern and, and, and so. No, but they also don't exist everywhere in the Eastern. I mean, so there's also a supply thing. No, no. The green issue is less, more of a, a Western European issue, and there's also more green parties. So. Yeah. And in France, I think there's uh, something interesting that's where Macron has actually failed in his way of um, uh, obliterating uh, the rest <coughs> of, the, of the parties because he has tried to get the. the environmental caution with quite big declaration, big initiatives, which actually haven't either um, translated in, in reality or he has come back on them. So I think there has been quite a lot of uh, um, caution. Uh, people are cautious about what he says when he talks about, and I mean, he tried to have Nicolas Hulot in his, uh, in his government who left because he was disappointed by, by the government and then he attracted for the European Pascal Canfin as number two on his list, which was a former director of WWF and who is uh, as well a, a very uh, big green caution, but it didn't work that well. And because this, the socialist uh, party is all over the place and doesn't manage to, to agree on one position, I think Europe Ecologie uh, uh, did very well use that kind of vacuum who was there and attracted specifically the young uh, vote. And as you were saying, the same Europe Ecologie Les Verts uh, with Yannick Jadot at the head is seen as a much more pragmatic, uh, centrist, left but left centrist uh, mind in terms of green and you have now you can see that uh, renaissance is trying to really charm them to say come on come in our group and be let's have a strong alliance together so they're becoming a real force i think of uh, in the parliament
questions from the yeah. Um, Robert Morland, I'm a former member of the European Parliament and a Conservative. In case you're worried, I was loyal, but only because the number one on my list was a Remainer. And he didn't get elected, actually. Um, and indeed, in my region, um, the, the six elected do not represent any of the parties elected for my region in Westminster, which I think must be a first. But my question quite simply is, first of all, um, the one subject here uh, that is going to clearly come up in the negotiations is going to be the Irish border question. I mean, it's still there as I understand it. And so my view is, do we see any likelihood of significant change? Because my view is, um, I don't see it, do you? And indeed, if I can say to Sarah, I was amazed in that discussion you were on on Sunday that I think the subject hardly came up at all. Um, and could you comment on that? And also comment, are there particular areas uh, in Europe where you can clearly see, apart from in the UK, that there would be a big difference in a national vote um, for a general election as opposed to the European election? Great questions. John, did you... Uh, yes, John Pete from The Economist. Um, I was interested that, Stephanie, uh, what you said about Weber and also what you said about Barnier. Um, I, I would like to ask, really, whether you think, whether any of you think that um, actually the European Council will now try and kill the Spitzenkandidat system, or whether it's just too late uh, and they can't kill it, in which case presumably we do get Weber. I mean, it's clear that Macron hates it, um, and I think Merkel dislikes it as well, and she didn't like it last time around. So could they actually do something like give the job to Barnier or give the job to um, Vestager or, or somebody else? And for those who want to know more and find out more about the Spitzenkandidat process, uh, the Institute for Government has put a helpful explainer together on how we appoint top <laughs> EU jobs, so you can look at that. Um, sorry, perhaps start with you on the Irish border. Um, if, could there be some, some softening or, or a change in the EU's position? Could it be driven by the European Parliament? Or? I mean, the thing is, the, the, the backstop is, of course, in the withdrawal agreement and the and the very clear unanimous position of the EU is that there will be no reopening of the negotiations under withdrawal agreement. There can be, uh, I think, tweaking changes to the political declaration, but not to the withdrawal agreement. Another issue to keep in mind is that even now, of course, with the front runners of your party, <laughs> I guess in, in, in a leadership contest, uh, many of them are saying, you know, that, um, that no deal is, should be a realistic option that should certainly remain on the table. The thing is, I always find the sort of no deal thing a bit curious. Is low, then we just leave and then it's all sorted. Of course, then presumably, unless we're never going to sort of do anything with the EU in the future, there will be, there need to be some kind of discussions. And I think then the border question will come back in because what are the three things that the EU are going to say to the UK uh, in order to reopen negotiations if, if, if the UK leaves in a disorderly manner, I would say it's the money and it's the citizens, right? And it's, um, which I guess that one would be less of a problem, and it's the border issue. So, so I mean, I agree with your take on it um, entirely. Uh, can I say just a little bit about the Spitzenkandidaten yeah, yeah. because I love them so much, the sort of whole thing? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, 
in fact, back in 2014, I think everyone was like, well, you know, they have won now. The European Parliament managed to get this through, even though the council wasn't keen about it. I would think that you're saying, oh, in order for it to survive, it has to be Weber. Well, I think that's a very British way of looking at it, like the biggest group. I mean, this is a, this is, you have to think about the continent. They have coalition governments and there has to be a majority. It's not all about the plurality. I often find there's this sort of cultural difference. And here, a liberal candidate who could command a majority might indeed be a way of the parliament saving face saying it's still Spitzenkandidaten. But it's uh, so best there. There would would be a possibility. Again, I mean, they will have you will have much more inside knowledge than I have on that. But but I think we don't have to think that it has to be uh, the EPP candidate who wins it for the parliament to be able to claim that the Spitzenkandidaten still win. It would be more difficult to do that with Barney, obviously, because he wasn't a candidate. But I think that could be a way of reconciling the two because that's what happens all the time with governments in Europe, that the Prime Minister is not necessarily the, the head of the largest party, it's whoever can command a majority of a bloc. Yeah. Also interesting that Aude put forward sort of this idea of Schwitzengruppen's sort of state silence on the Schwitzengruppen. I noticed that, 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 uh, that um, for Hofstadt was really against the idea yeah. uh, this morning, and I thought, is that because he knows it's not going to be him? <laughs> I don't know, it just seemed like a, an, a bit of a shift from 2014, where he was quite keen on it. Anyway, that's a, I mean, who's, who's going to be, at the end of the day, the, who's going to get the top job? I think it's really now a $1 million question. I think it's really, I, I, I scanned all the German media this morning trying to find an answer to that. I can't. No one knows. It's really second guessing now. Um, I do think the Spitzenkandidaten process is a tricky thing for the uh, council because they cannot just completely ignore it, because they depend on the uh, parliament in the whole procedure. So the, the parliament has to, I mean, pragmatically, they cannot ignore the parliament because the parliament has to give confirmation to, to all the jobs and all, to all the commissioners. So, and I mean, you know the European parliament very well. They will never miss an opportunity to play up. So um, I'd, be, I'd be careful that I don't think there will be someone uh, president of the commission who has not somehow a link to the Spitzenkandidaten process saying that, what we also know in Brussels, at the end of the day, it takes time and it's a fudge. So, um, woman, uh, small country, all the parties have to be reflected in the top jobs, so it could be Vester, she's a woman, she's from the Liberal, and then you have the other top jobs, you also don't forget the ECB, I mean the ECB is one, the European Central Bank also needs a drag is going. Probably won't be a German, but there are two French candidates that have very good uh, chances to get that job. Um, and when it comes to Weber, the only thing that's for sure, Macron doesn't like him. Macron really doesn't want him. Merkel is not very keen either. Uh, IKK, Kam Karrenbauer, has been not very enthusiastic. She's also endorsed him, but like, yeah, I've got to do that. So I can't see it, but I'm not putting any money on, on anything. I bet, one, I bet one bar of chocolate that he's, Weber is not going to be the president of the commission, but only bar of chocolate. Um, of course, there are other jobs as well. It's not just the head of the yes. European Commission. Um, and there's been some talk about even the you know, uh, European Central Bank as well and, and sort of uh, governments thinking about that. But as always, it's going to be a trade-off. You need to have, you know, each of them needs to, to be satisfied at the end. It's a gigantic uh, negotiation and discussion which can 
take a long time. And uh, it's true that Macron doesn't like uh, sh th that system, but I don't know if he doesn't like that system or if he really doesn't like uh, Weber. So it might be a bit of a in between. <laughs> in between. But clearly, um, clearly, I think it all depends on how. I mean, we'll know more after tonight dinner already, maybe where maybe they not. will discuss, maybe or maybe not. not. As for the Irish border, I mean. Again, what Sarah was saying, it's, it's, uh, it's a question which is going to be here um, ever. There is no, I don't think there is the slightest chance, and I um, was talking and I heard some, some French uh, politicians again say that uh, over the last three or four days, there is no chance at all that they, they will drop that Irish uh, or island in terms of saying, come on, you need to you need to accommodate or something because we need a deal. I, I, there is really, because, because if you do that, you prove, you prove Brexit party, you prove Farage right. You prove that if you push enough, the, the EU will relent and will let down one of its mem members. So I don't think there is the slightest chance that uh, they're going to um, change anything on that. So you think they, 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 would, they wouldn't be prepared to perhaps have further talks, even if that meant that it would no, be yes, no they deal. Could, they will always be open to further talks and further, further tweaks. I mean, they have been already on the political declaration. I'm sure they're happy to, to do more and more uh, on that. But again, you have that uncertainty here. I mean, I, I really think that right now in Brussels and in all the European cap capitals, everyone is, is expecting already to to see that it, we might get a no deal in the end because looking at the, the, the leadership contest, it really all depends on what's going to happen. And you, you can see very clearly right now between the, the first 10 out of the 60 uh, candidates who are going to declare themselves over the next days that you have really the one saying we can get out, no problem, and the one saying it would be a catastrophe and the, the whole and that will, be, will basically um, lead the rest of the negotiation afterwards, if there is any. Um, I have to say, actually, I, I was in Brussels recently and there was a real sense amongst businessmen there that they were kind of, you know, the EU in general was switching off slightly from Brexit and saying, you know, until we get a clear uh, sense of direction either way, we're not really going to engage. But also in businessmen thinking, well, we've got the necessary contingency planning in place um, and we can cope with it. But I, I do think that there is more to that and actually um, it might come bubble up again and, and sort of you know become a priority issue. Um, we haven't answered the question about you know voting in the European elections and national elections. Does, does the outcome in certain member states um, in this EU election, is that something we should be watching for in the forthcoming general elections? Uh, so I mean I think I, I sort of partly addressed it uh, it, to a previous, I mean, the thing about European Parliament elections that they are a bit like American midterm elections. So there tends to be a swing against uh, the incumbent, and that's because uh, people use it as a sort of protest vote. There's also kind of sincere voting, but parties on the fringes tend to do better. So there's no direct translation. It's not like, oh, you know, Le Pen won by a whisker, then she's going to be the next president. I mean, no, it's not like that. It's also not, not like that Farage is going to be the next prime minister of Britain when there's a general election. That's not exactly how European Parliament elections vote. On the other hand, what they do tend to do is create a sort of platform for especially smaller parties to sort of, you know, launch some kind of a, 
do a bit better often in national elections, but they are just, they're very cyclical. So if they just before a general election, like they, are in Den they were in Denmark, you know, I would be worried now if I was the head of the Social Democrats that they didn't come top because it's so close. But if they're in the midterm, they are really sort of just the way, because voters are not voting for a government, even though the Spitzenkandidat and procedure was meant that they were voting for a European government. But that's not how people see it. People see it as a sort of a, a way that they can express themselves politically with very limited consequences. So, so that's not, you know, I love European Parliament election. I don't think we should ignore them, but we cannot see them as equivalent to, to a national vote for a government. But interesting that Alexis Tsipras from Greece has said that, you know, calling a snap election, clearly thinking that this result mattered and actually... Yeah, I mean, there might also then be some strategic consideration. He knew he was going to have an election. Is he going to lose less by doing it, you know, quicker? I mean, in that sense, they, you know, they do, they are kind of barometer of public opinion. He'd been unpopular for a while, and then he saw uh, that this was going to, uh, you know, that, you know, he'd have to do something. Could he have not called an election? Yes, but then he might fear he would have done even worse. But the, it doesn't necessarily translate. It's not like, you know, didn't, I think, uh, Le Pen also called for, for yes. Macron to take the country, political consequence, but he's not going to, I assume, uh, call an election no. and, and say, oh, yeah, let's, let's uh, you and me. Um, I mean, no, so, so I don't think, I think they are a very national context and they given you know, give a sense of, of where the public mood is. But they don't, it doesn't mean that the parties that, that do well uh, necessarily also do well. In, but they have, I mean, in Italy, they will also have implications. I'm sure, sure Salvini will now, he was the junior coalition partner in Italy, uh, behind quite a lot smaller than the Five Star Movement. The fact that he came out very comfortably on top of the Five Star Movement, I'm sure will mean that, if nothing else, he'll try and extract some concessions and maybe even at some point have an election because he, he's, he's so much more popular mm -hmm. and thinks that he should really be the sort of top dog in Italy. And Italian's former uh, Prime Minister uh, also in the in European Parliament. Back with a new face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, in Italy, I think it was one of the lowest turnout of the whole uh, Europe. Especially uh, in the southern part, where, yeah. of course, the five-star movement uh, does well. They didn't yeah. turn out. Great. Um, well, thank you very much. I think we are actually very close to closing. Is there a last question? If not, I will, I will tie it. No? Okay. Um, can you join me in thanking our panel for this excellent discussion? I feel like I've learned so much. Um, it's interesting, really, that there's clearly a story of resilience uh, in the EU. Um, you know, you were saying, Sarah, about sort of grand coalition building. It might be a different kind, but that's still going to happen. Um, but also picking up on the kind of splits in the EU, you know, the centre-right and the centre-left doing... Uh, not as well, and that there are new dividing lines which appear to be along identity rather than, than economic uh, and the traditional sort of social divides. Um, new groups, um, uh, the Lib Dems and the Green, British Greens being part now and how that's going, that might help um, for Alde to secure some of those top jobs. Um, but also questions of, of kind of demands. How are these all these Green candidates going to come together? How do the populists come together? How do the nationalists... Are they going to work together um, either to reform or, or to block uh, reform? But that's the thing, that the populist party are so divided in the European Parliament. I mean, they're members of three different groups. Yeah. And uh, Le Pen is trying to talk to Farage, but I don't think they're, they're going to end up in the same group. So even that it is another reason not to talk about the populist wave, because they never agree on anything, and they're not much there anyway as well. <laughs> well, lots, lots to talk about, lots of... 
uh, I think trade, digital taxation, seeing how all these groups um, re react and how they seek to influence. But please join me in thanking our panel. And thanks for being here.